An important part of our Unitarian Universalist living tradition is the uh, practice of having both a free pulpit, this pulpit, it's free, but so is the pew, a free pulpit and a free pew. My freedom of the pulpit means that I am charged to preach whatever I think will be significant and meaningful for us to consider. And your freedom of the pulpit means you're not expected to believe anything just because I say it or just because it's said from this or any other pulpit. That being said, once a year, members of this uh, congregation and friends as well uh, contribute all sorts of items and events and opportunities to our annual auction. And each year, one of my annual auction contributions is to preach a sermon on the topic of the highest bidder's choice. Whatever subject you are passionate about or think would be particularly challenging or meaningful or provocative even, as you like. So if there's a sermon topic you've been hoping to hear addressed, our current auction, uh, you know, you have until 4 p.m. today could be your chance. Uh, so go for it. Last time I checked, the highest bid was a little over $400. Uh, so how much am I worth to you, right? <laughs> <laughs> No, in all seriousness, that's actually why starting with the last auction, I've also introduced a ask me anything because I recognize that not everyone can afford to try to win the sermon. But so if you can't get the tw my 20 minute response to something, you can do the ask me anything where you'll get it at least like a five minute uh, answer. Uh, so, so look for the ask me anything. It's only like 10 or 20 bucks. It's much cheaper than the uh, than the auction sermon. Uh, last year, Bob Ladner did win the auction sermon, or I guess it was in May, and as the topic he chose, is there an antidote to bad faith? So if you like this sermon, uh, think Bob, it was his idea and likely wouldn't have happened otherwise. <laughs> but if you don't like the specifics, blame me, because, uh, <laughs> because the highest, right, exactly, exactly, because the highest bidder gets to choose the topic, not the content, right? <laughs> so, and so in selecting this topic of is there an antidote to bad faith, Bob said he particularly had in mind that many of us would love to love our neighbors without exception, but we know that there are people who regularly deal in bad faith. And with election denial continuing as Election Day rapidly approaches on Tuesday, November 8th, it can be especially consequential when anti-democratic, authoritarian politicians act in bad faith. How many of you have already voted? Who's voted early? I have. My wife has. Great, great. So a lot of you have. Also, uh, encourage anyone you know in your life that hasn't voted, including anyone 18 or older, right? En encourage them to get out the vote. So let me submit for your consideration that one significant antidote to bad faith is raising people's awareness that bad faith actors exist. Because a lot of people kind of go around having conversations with people, even debates, or just you know planning strategy, as if everyone's acting in good faith. And that's just not so. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about what does bad faith mean? In modern parlance, bad faith typically doesn't have anything to do with heretical religious beliefs or religious beliefs at all, really. Instead, it's about giving lip service to being honorable and, res and respectable, all while actually acting in deceitful, hypocritical, and self-serving ways. A classic example of bad faith would be in a battle, waving the white flag of surrender, and then when your enemies come forward, shooting them. Right, that is to act 
in bad faith. Uh, I don't know if any of you have seen uh, House of the Dragon. I don't know any House of the Dragon. But that literally happens in like one of the early episodes of this first season, right? Someone does that kind of bad, precise bad faith action. Other classic examples of bad faith, including negotiating with someone, entering into negotiating with a negotiation with them solely for the purpose of soliciting more information. Like you have no, uh, from the very beginning, you, you have no intent of compromising your actual position, but you enter into the negotiation in bad faith just to get more information or maybe even to get them to compromise or manipulating language and reasoning to deliberately um, mislead others. One of my favorite books about bad faith is titled The Cynic and the Fool by Tad DeLay. He's a philosophy professor actually right over in Baltimore who writes at the intersection of religion, politics, and psychoanalysis. If you find yourself disagreeing with someone, delay urges you to notice what is underneath your disagreement. To use delay's categories, are you dialoguing with a misinformed but honest fool? Or are you dealing with a nihilistic cynic who does not care about the truth and is saying or doing whatever it takes to spin doctor perception and to win? at any cost. That really matters, that difference. It makes all the difference in the world of whether you should walk away or how you should engage. Uh, if your interlocutor is acting in good faith, with honesty, with sincerity of intent, or are they acting in bad faith with an intent to deceive, with a, a Nietzschean will to power? And we know there have been lots of bad faith actors over time. This is not some new thing, because we have lots of words to describe them, right? Con man. Demagogue, that's someone who appeals to the emotions of the crowd, right? Snake oil salesman, huckster, charlatan, cheat, fraud, sham, swindler, right? This exists. It's existed for a long time. To return to our focal question, so is there an antidote for bad faith once we're more aware of it? I want to be honest with you that at least in my current view, I'm not particularly hopeful about the potential to reform the worst and most prominent of our bad faith actors in politics today. Rather, I do truly think that the best thing to do is to remove them from power to the best of our ability, even if that is difficult. You know, I, as a Buddhist, I wish them well, right? May you be filled with loving kindness and may you be removed from power so that you may not <laughs> do harm to others, right? So, right, we need to do our best to leverage power and win. And that's part of what we've been doing through You, You, The Vote. It's also important to acknowledge that while we're making a lot of good faith efforts to advocate for our values in the public square, many bad faith actors are also busy with as many underhanded methods as they can muster. Uh, there's a scene from uh, Harry Potter, all these witch hats are making me think of this, where they're, it's in the, the beginning of book six, where they're like, you all have magic, why can't you win? And it's like, well, the other side has magic too. Right? So that we're, we're all using the tricks at our disposal, gerrymandering, propaganda, lying, right? Uh, I don't know if any of you have been watching, I'm mentioning a lot of TV today, but uh, the Andor on Disney Plus, uh, which for my money is by far the best of these uh, Star Wars shows. Now, Grogu is super cute, right? Baby Yoda. I'll give you all the money for the baby, the baby Yoda merchandise, right? Like, but, but Andor is really smart. And the fact that they're releasing it right in this election season, it is really about what leads to a resistance happening? You know, how much pain does it take before people are willing to fight the empire? It is a really, really smart show. 
so I want to try and respond to this question, uh, is there an antidote to bad faith in at least two ways? This Sunday, I want to focus on a more interpersonal, psychological approach uh, to uh, specifically deep canvassing. And next Sunday, um, when we're two days out from Election Day, I want to consider a more systemic level change in that, that sermon on a brief history of equality. And it's really, this is kind of a three-sermon, uh, three-Sunday sermon series. The Sunday after the election, regardless of the outcome, I want to spend some time reflecting on what we can and can't know about what the future holds. So as an antidote to people being misled by bad faith actors, what actually works to change people's minds? A few years ago, when I last preached on the topic of persuasion, the main case study I used was motivational interviewing. That's kind of a related technique to deep canvassing, but it's a little bit different. That sermon titled, Maintaining UU Principles When We Can't Agree on the Facts, that's in our sermon archive. I think it was in 2017, if you want to check it out. Uh, the biggest thing I tell you about motivational interviewing is trying to figure out Again, what's underneath? What is someone's motivation? So like if you're arguing with someone about vaccines, for example, it would be getting underneath, instead of just debating the facts, it would be saying underneath all of that is safety. It's a fear and a concern about safety. And having the discussion at that deeper level really can shift things uh, much, much more than debating the facts. But for this morning, I want to explore a related technique called deep canvassing. Has anybody been trained in deep canvassing? I know we have a few. Steve, you've done, you're, you've trained people in deep canvassing, right? So talk to Steve if you want to learn some more after this. I'll be drawing from a recent book titled How Minds Change, The Surprising Science of Belief, Opinion, and Persuasion by David McCraney. And there's so much more to this book, but so I, I do recommend it to you if you're interested. Uh, he's a journalist who, hosts, holds, who hosts a podcast with the provocative title, You Are Not So Smart. Uh, and that's based on a book with the same title. And the subtitle of that um, book is Why You Have Too Many Friends on Facebook, why your memory is mostly fiction and 46 other ways you're deluding yourself. <laughs> anyway, one of his areas of interest is the way we human beings frequently fall into the trap of cognitive biases and, and logical fallacies. In other words, even when we consciously have good intentions, our unconscious biases and our motivated reasoning, how we're really drawn to things that confirm what we currently think and we're, we're sort of repelled by things that, that challenge us, that can lead us to be less smart than we often perceive ourselves to be and lead us to operate with a kind of unconscious bad faith. When his book was published about a decade ago in 2012, uh, McRaney confesses that he was in a pretty pessimistic place about trying to change people's minds. About a year later, his own mind had surprisingly changed and he had become more hopeful. So what happened? He watched in real time the shifting public opinion in regard to same-sex marriage, and that really gave him hope. And then he began looking more into things historically. Uh, McRaney had spent many years as a journalist moderating really daily arguments about how same-sex marriage was going to ruin America. And, you know, and later people realized that same-sex marriage was not going to ruin America any more than heterosexual marriage. Like, they were sort of... <laughs> Equally, right? Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, then around this, uh, the time his book was published in 2012, we finally reached a majority of U.S. citizens supporting same-sex marriage. And this really strange thing happened. When the majority flipped, the arguments started to evaporate. 
especially compared to the vitriolic level and the frequency they had been at before. As he began to investigate this phenomenon more closely, it turns out there are a number of precedents. Since polling began in the early 20th century, and we start to have data around this stuff that we can track, nearly half of the significant opinion shifts in the United States have been abrupt. Opinions about abortion, the war in Vietnam, attitudes about race, and women and voting rights and smoking and marijuana uh, and many others were stable for years. But when the tide of public opinion finally shifted on them just a little over the majority, it then started to shift really quickly. And the funny thing is that if you could go back into a time machine just a few years earlier, people would be arguing with themselves right? Because people have been on sort of one side and with the, the same fever that they argued about wedge issues previously. It's a lot to say about this, including the importance of building momentum locally and at the state level so that you kind of reach this cresting tipping point to make change at the, the national level. Uh, and again, McCraney's book is fascinating and accessible about all of this, as well as uh, many more related topics. But I want to invite us to focus on deep canvassing this morning, because there's some takeaways that you can experiment, you know, with Thanksgiving coming up and the holidays and water cool. You can, you can kind of practice some of this and let me know how it goes. Deep canvassing is a relatively new practice with a really impressive track record. Not every time, but often, people using this technique can get a person to give up a long-held opinion and change their position about a contentious social issue in less than 20 minutes. Even more importantly, when people have gone back six months, a year, two years later, it sticks. There's really sticking power here, and that's what's really, really important. Now, I know, again, some of you have done deep canvassing, and I'd be interested to hear about your successes and failures over time. Others of you may have heard about it a few years ago. There was an article on deep canvassing in the uh, prestigious journal Science. Uh, that success was then picked up by The Atlantic. They ran an article titled, No, Wait, Short Conversations Really Can Reduce Prejudice. Uh, it was picked up in The New York Times in an article on How Do You Change Voters' Minds? Have a conversation. But this is important. Not all conversations work. Anyone had a fruitless conversation in the past with someone? Yes, me too. Not all conversations work. So let's talk about what conversational methods does science show us are more effective. In the spirit of full transparency, let me be clear about the scale of change we're talking about. In one recent experiment with deep canvassing, one in 10 people uh, opposed to transgender rights changed their views. And on average, they changed that view by about 10%, by about 10 points on a 101 point feelings thermometer. Now, if one in 10 doesn't sound like much, McRaney said, you were neither a politician nor a political scientist because politicians and political scientists pay way more money for way less change all the time. A change of much less than that could easily turn, you know, can rewrite laws, it can flip a swing state, it can really make a difference in an election. A shift of 1% has the chance to set in motion a generational change as it begins to snowball. Keep in mind these impressive results were from a crew of people with little previous experience in deep canvassing, having conversations that in this case were approximately 10 minutes in length. So you're, you're making a lot of change in a pretty little amount of time. As a point of comparison, again, you know, I can just think of times I have spent 
hours debating with someone and the only thing that changed was that my level of resentment grew like i just like disliked the person more right that's no good you know it felt like i was just beating my head against a brick wall and like the brick wall didn't change but my head started to hurt right if you want to be formally trained in deep canvassing just do some light googling and there are lots of opportunities out there but for now i want to give you just two tricks to kind of have in your back pocket uh either of them can be effective in isolation but uh, deep canvassing as it's at its best uses both and in a, a strategic way uh, to shape the flow of a 10 to 20 minute conversation the first of these two shifts is to switch from what to why from what to why uh, the what refers to debating facts, you know, arguing about differing interpretations of the facts uh, and the evidence. It just keeps people all up in their head and you end up playing this game of whack-a-mole. When people are all up in their head, you know, you, you, it's like battling a hydra. You lop off one head, you whack one mole, and it just, they just grow another head. They just grow another. Uh, so it's, it's just fruitless. No, uh, but shifting to the why, it means making that all-important 18-inch journey from your head and then getting them in the heart. It just makes all the difference in the world. Instead of focusing on what you respectively believe, why do you feel that way? And then you start to get into story. And that's where the magic can begin to happen. If you're stuck in cognitively debating facts, people tend to act like defense attorneys. And defense attorneys are really, really good at defending anything you want them to defend, right? Uh, so their chart, people just sort of endlessly innovate new defense strategies. But if you ask about the why, curiosity might unexpectedly open up people as they consider, wait, why do I feel that way? That's a really powerful question. Not what do I think, but yeah, why, why do I feel so strongly about this issue? Where did that come from? In the words of one deep canvassing trainer, I, I have seen this kind of newfound ambivalence just wash over someone. Yeah, why do I feel that way? It can suddenly feel like we are solving a mystery together instead of debating back and forth. Why do I feel this way? Even more fascinating is when this kind of philosophical contemplation results in the person you're doing deep canvassing with, they start producing their own counter arguments that are actually far more effective than when you try to counter argue with them. Now, this doesn't always happen, but you can increase the likelihood of success with our second trick, sharing emotionally vulnerable stories. Are you willing to tell a personal story about why you feel the way that you feel. And that can also kind of loosen up within them. Oh, yeah, that kind of resonates with, with something within me. I'd kind of you know, divide that thing that happened to my niece or my brother or my friend or whatever. Uh, for instance, if you were deep canvassing around reproductive justice, you might show how, how did you first hear about abortion or your own close friends or your own abortion story. That can open up a similar level of deep sharing within the other. Emotionally vulnerable personal stories really are a key ingredient to this process. We could contrast this impact with, with what is sometimes called the fact checkers fallacy. The fact checkers fallacy is that if someone reads like logical facts on the other side, that that's most likely to change their mind. But social scientists have tested many different methods for deep canvassing, many different order for doing things, and the results consistently show if you remove the non-judgmental listening and the story sharing, the effect disappears. You add back in non-judgmental listening and emotionally vulnerable story sharing, and the effect shows right 
back up and the stickiness. Let me hasten to add that this brief overview can by no means replace an actual training in deep canvassing where you're going to get a lot more depth, where you're going to get a chance to practice or to go out in the field and do it and then come back and debrief and you know, hone your method. But to tie it all together, the following is a very brief distillation of the process. If I had to create like a top 10 list, like top 10 deep canvassing. Uh, Number one would be establish rapport with the person and make it really clear you have no intent to shame them. Because that's what a lot of these, you know, a lot of these conversations are kind of held from a stance of why do you suck so much for having the opinion that you have? It turns out that's ineffective for, you know, uh, uh, developing a relationship with someone. So establish rapport and ask for their consent. You know, legitimately, I really want to know why you think what you think. The origins of deep canvassing come out of 2008. Do you remember Prop 8 in California? when California voted to ban same-sex marriage and deep canvassing came out of what just happened and authentically wanting to know. So LGBTQ activists went out and just sort of, I, I'm not going to argue with you. I just legitimately want to know why did you vote the way you voted? And that, that's where this whole process came out of. Uh, the second is to ask how strongly you feel about an issue on a, on a scale of one to 10. So that, that's going to give you your baseline to then um, see where it's going. And then the third step is to share a story, uh, not your story, but to share a story about someone. So you begin, you share your first story and then ask a second time how strongly they feel and notice if that has already moved the dial or not just sharing that story and what you're doing is that a lot of people we're increasingly in these echo chambers right so just having someone that's coming from this kind of neutral place and sharing a story with you that alone can shift things when people are in such echo chambers siloed off from one another and once they've settled on their number and whether it's shift you ask and this is that, why do I feel this way? You're kind of inviting them into philosophy class. Why does that number feel right to you? So you're starting to get them, get them into story. And once they've offered their reasons, you just repeat them back in your own words. You'll notice in this whole process, there's no contending. There's no debating the facts. All you're ever doing is sharing, a, sharing two stories and kind of repeating back to them to show that you're really listening to them. Did I get this right? Is this what you're saying? Ask then if there's a time in their life before they felt this way, and if so, what led to their current attitude? You're helping them see that their point of view is socially constructed over time, and that get, can open up two things. One, that they might socially construct it differently, as well as it can kind of let them see, oh, I could see how other people who had different experiences might think differently, right? You're kind of open them up to this kind of historical point of view. Again, listen, summarize, repeat. Final two steps. This is when you find you share your personal stories. This is the final kind of, you know, you share your emotional vulnerable story again, modeling vulnerability stories, not facts or debate. And finally, ask for their rating a final time and then wrap up and wish them well. And, you know, this is just um, a skeletal process. You know, it can go differently because you sharing your story could open up something in them. You'll see how it unfolds. And keeping in mind that it can be hugely significant. If you shift someone in 10 minutes from a 10 to a 7, that can then kind of gradually change over time and and someone's willingness to listen at seven from a place of ambivalence instead of a place of a solid 10 where there is no other way that that's huge now let me also just be honest that this this raises the question how might we all be deep canvassed are you 10 minutes away from changing your mind about something you think is a deeply held belief maybe not from a 10 to a one but maybe for a one to a three or a 10 to a seven and that's actually part of why i'm incredibly grateful for this big tent community we're all in because we do challenge one another to think about 
uh, angles that we may not have thought of before. And I'm increasingly convinced that most big social problems, they are not, quote, problems to be solved, they're polarities to be managed. Like we have to manage this kind of polarity. So holding all this in our heart and maybe feeling maybe a little more hope than you did before that there are these things like deep canvassing that can be tools in our repertoire. As we move to our next hymn, and Deb's going to introduce it in a second, I want us to hold in our heart as we sing this hymn, it's in your teal hymnal, that this song comes out of South African apartheid. So I want to be real with y'all, and we'll talk more about it last week. We're in a you know, a tricky place in our democracy right now. But I also want us to keep in mind that there are movements like the South African apartheid movement where they were in a worse place democratically than we are and change can come. Let's hope we don't have to go there before we come back. Uh, but just hold that in your heart. Uh, there, there really is hope uh, no matter what. Let's rise in body or spirit. Let's sing together. Deb's going to introduce. <laughs> 